Welcome to The Changing World of Work, a podcast series that gives you access to some of the best business minds from around the world. My name is Claire Luby from Irish Times Training. In collaboration with Kevin Empey, founder of Work Matters, we are bringing you conversations with international guests whose cutting-edge insights will disrupt your thinking and make you reflect on today's ever-evolving world of work. Welcome to this episode of the Changing World of Work podcast, brought to you by Irish Times Training. I am your host, Kevin Empey. Deborah Rowland is a leading educator, writer, coach and practitioner in the leadership of change. With an educational background originally in archaeology and anthropology from Cambridge, Deborah has devoted her career to the study and practice of effective ways to lead change at individual team and organisational level. Through her various executive positions that she's held, Deborah has personally led major change in global organisations such as Shell, Gucci, BBC Worldwide and PepsiCo. She then founded her own consulting firm, Still Moving, which today works with a wide range of organisations and leaders globally and also conducts original and academically acclaimed research in the field of change and change leadership. Deborah's work has seen her named on the Global Thinkers 50 Radar list and the HR Most Influential Thinkers list. She is the author and co-author of several books, including her own bestseller, Still Moving, How to Lead Mindful Change, and The Still Moving Field Guide, Change, Vitality at Your Fingertips. Deborah Rowland, welcome. Maybe just to begin, Deborah, could you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in the world of work and, and change in particular? I mean, looking at your career path, you could have taken any number of, of directions, but what was it about this field that, that inspired you? Yes, when I was reflecting uh, before this podcast, I feel I've had an amazing 40-year adventure, really. So that gives my age away a bit. But I was in a, a workshop last week at my university where I used to study. And literally 40 years ago, I had deja vu of when I graduated. So yes, my 40-year career has taken me on all kinds of many turns. Um, it's been an enriching experience from the beginning. And I think one of the biggest themes I've noticed about it is how loyal I've been to my calling um, and my intention. And I've discovered that along the way. I don't think, you know, when I graduated at 21, exactly what that was going to be. But I, ha- I had a sense of it. So my loyalty is to that more than loyalty to any particular company or any particular industry. But the world of work, let's just start there. Um, you know, Kevin, I read anthropology at university. So anthropology is the, you know, the the, the intense curiosity you have about any human system, any human location in a way, be that a community, be that a workplace. And I find workplaces endlessly fascinating as an anthropologist. And there is a group of us, I can't remember what the organisation is called now, but anthropologists in organisations, how our skills of detached observation uh, can work extraordinarily well. So I've been across many settings, um, many different countries as well. But I think I I want to just register. I um, worked with a guy called Dr. George New, who was a behavioural scientist. And I met him in my late 20s. I was working in the wicked world of advertising at the time, um, in the 80s. And George New had studied chemistry and then he wanted to study behavioural science and particularly in the workplace, how a leader's style impacts organisational climate, how organisational climate affects performance and well-being. So there, and he did lots and lots of studies about that. 
using the work of a guy called David McClelland, who mm-hmm. was at Harvard University. Mm-hmm. So that got me, fa- I, I switched. I thought, right, advertising, be gone. Get behind me, advertising. And I wanted to devote my life to studying workplaces and motivational theory and how we can get human flourishing there. So I think that's probably uh, escape through why I find workplaces endlessly fascinating. They are a habitat for human uh, behaviour. As to the world of change, well, I like both novelty and stability. And the more I got into the field of change, uh, complex adaptive systems in particular, having an equal balance of both novelty and chaos and stability and structure are really important for continual innovation. So I thought, yeah, I like both, you know, difference and novelty. I also like a lot of structure in my life. So maybe I had a natural inclination into the field of change. But I think my motivation was to try and make the field of leading change as empirically led as possible. Many, many change theories out there. And I guess it was my unrequited PhD that I never went back to do at university, but I've done the research in the field around change Mm -hmm. as well. So to ground it in science rather than just a personal hunch about how change works. Um, And fundamentally, I think you you know me quite well by now, Kevin, I can source it back even earlier than that, really, to my moment of birth. So as an adopted child, uh, my life began in change. That's the first line in my book, Still Moving. So I think at some very, very deep cellular level, I know what it's like to face disruption, Mm. unprecedented change where you are out of control. So I think maybe my start of life also somehow got me on the field as well. Yeah, you've talked about that experience and that sense of alertness or maybe even, you know, being a little bit on the outside or being concerned about change you know, been a heightened awareness to change and disruption um, as a child. Yes, that's a, a great way of putting it. I think being on the edge, being on the boundary, being on the periphery of a system, never mm. feeling completely that you are in or belonging, partly because of trust, but partly because I quite enjoy being on the boundary. And I guess anthropology, mm-hmm. likewise, has a natural calling, I think, for people who prefer to be on the edge observing a system rather than having your feet fully in a family or fully in an organisation. So yes, absolutely, being on the edge of things um, suits me very well. Mm. Although one person said to me the other day, Kevin, that maybe because of my adoption, I have quite an untethered feature to my personality. You know, I can, I was called an air plant once in terms of going around (laughs) everywhere. But she also said to me, it also means that you don't recognise a no entry sign. Mm. Mm. Which I thought was a wonderful um, metaphor, really, for I just go into new things, yeah, just, yeah. Um, sometimes without checking things <laughs> beforehand. But again, maybe it's quite helpful when you're having to summon up the courage to go into different places. You talk so much in Still Moving and um, other contexts about that sense of alertness and just noticing what's going on. Maybe we come back to that in terms of your mm. ideas and insights on change and and change leadership today, but but just maybe to bring us a bit up to date and and to your your earlier point about the world of work and just keen on your on your take on this. I mean, we, as you say, we we've both worked in this field a long time, and and I certainly don't recall any period where the topic of work and people and work and working life in general has been so prevalent or debated. 
than it is today. And and on the one hand, you know, some say, well, look, the, the world of work has always changed, and 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 this period is just part of that continuum. You know, and maybe it's just talked about more in, in social media and in other other elsewhere. But but others feel like we we are at a genuine inflection point over the last five, ten, fifteen years in terms of work, and you know now post COVID and acceleration of technology and so on. And so, just interested on on your as a sort of a student of work, you know, an observer of work and a participant, practitioner, leader. You know, what's your view on that and where we are, if you like, in the in the world of work? What's different, if you like, if anything, from previous uh, cycles of change? Mm. My observations, Kevin, are this really is a flexion point. I think it's extraordinary how the world of work has changed, um, whether that be driven by COVID. I, I, I think what's really changed is, as you say, it's now more talked about. So many things were taken for granted, say, five or 10 years ago. How we got on a plane, you know, to go to meetings all around the world. How we had conversations with each other at the workplace. So even behaviour that we would tolerate in the workplace. So much was just, well, that's how workplaces are. And I think be that with the technology or COVID, um, there's a heightened attention Mm. now to behaviour in the workplace. And I do think the flexible working that is now prevalent, that people are now getting used to, is a massive, massive change. Just a funny story. Well, I think it's funny. I was with an executive the other week at a quite a, you know, 150-year-old British engineering company. Um, and it was an organisation where you never wore brown shoes to work. In fact, he knew of people who got fired for wearing brown shoes to work. You had to wear black shoes to work. And he was saying, given with the, all the Zoom and the working on Teams now, it doesn't give a damn what you're wearing, what you're wearing beneath your waist. So there's a freedom, there's a sort of a liberation, really. We can be more truly ourselves. We have to be less conformist. I mean, that's radically different. And um, I read a report only this morning that um, only 35% of executives now have a permanent desk at work. Only 35%. You know, when I entered the workplace, it was a a right, an entitlement. How big was your office, your desk? You know, which window did you look out of? All of that's now gone out of the window. And 60% of managers and uh, the C-suite leaders now work in flexible remote places. 60% of the workforce now living in remote places, not going to the office. I mean, I, well, I live in London. I just noticed it on the underground now. Mm-hmm. Rush hour mm-hmm. looks, looks you know, a very, very different thing. So what does all of this mean? I think certainly in the client work I'm doing now, there's a huge focus now on efficiency and a restructuring for efficiency. Obviously, with the um, economic slowdown, that's been driving it. But I think people now realise what is the cost to have a workplace so a much more heightened attention on work design, uh, jobs, roles. I mean, GE is splitting. Who would have thought that GE would would split? So I guess that's giving a bit of anxiety sometimes in the workplace around job security, mm-hmm. but certainly a big emphasis on, at the moment anyway, efficiency, getting the business models have radically changed, supply chains have changed. So that's a big thing I'm observing. Um, a much more skill-based hiring. I think when I started, you know, I did anthropology at university and somebody took a punt on me and, you know, hired me into the world of, of advertising. So I was hired on potential. 
Now, as I understand it, more organizations now, you have to have a skill set because the whole focus now is on the efficiency of the workplace. Mm. You know, you've got to demonstrate skills as opposed to, well, she looks a bright kid, let's see what we can do. So I think there's a heightened um, emphasis on that and greater mobility of talent as well. So I think now we've normalized remote working and with digital technology, you know, I know this with, with some of my more junior family members, they can glide across multiple jobs. And, and again, in this report, it was from the MIT report on the changing world of work. Apparently, today's younger workers will on average have 12 to 15 jobs in their lifetime. Mm. That's a lot of moving around. It is. Whereas when I entered the workplace, it was more you, you worked for an, an accountancy firm and that was mm. it. And you kind of you, you hung around. Um, but beyond efficiency and flexible working and digital, I find the biggest thing that's different now, Kevin, about the changing world of work is a more heightened attention, I was saying it earlier, to our behaviour, mm. to the humanity that shows up at work. What is good leadership or acceptable behaviour and what is not? Clearly driven by the whole wonderful emphasis now on DE&I, mm-hmm. mental health issues, the Me Too generation. I mean, the crisis in the Metropolitan Police here in the UK, and then it became the Fire Brigade, Now, the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, have had sexual harassment suits. So I don't think it's necessarily increasing, but it was probably always prevalent. But now the workplace will not condone that. And I'm really pleased about that. Yeah, there's a real sense of of awareness of that. And I think probably too, you know, COVID again, it seemed to accelerate that more human perspective as well, because it was a, you know, it was a life and death you know, era that we went through and concern for people continuing to work, um, but at home with all these other responsibilities and concerns that they had, the sort of a heightened awareness again of the human dimension. Oh, definitely. I mean, we all had to get used to Zoom or Teams Mm. or anything, but I always find it just wonderful how when you saw somebody in their home, how you got a bigger sense of who who that person Mm. was. Mm. You know, the classic thing is what books do I put on my bookshelf behind or suddenly a dog barks or their child walks in. So I absolutely agree with you. I think this remote working, we've seen so much more of the whole person. So I think this whole thing about work-life balance, which was a huge thing, what, 10, 20 years ago, is is a bit more fuzzy now, Mm. fuzzy at the boundaries. Yeah, and which has its downside, of it, course. <laughs> it, it does, of course, and there's paradoxes in there, isn't there? It, it's from everything you've been saying. It, uh, I get a sense that what you're getting at is is it's not one thing that's changed. It's a convergence of things that have been changing. Whether it be a generational perspective, whether it be behavioural, whether it be to do with technology, automation, skills. Of course, the irony on skills and looking for skills is that those skills change so quickly, and they're you know the half life of skills is is decreasing all the time. So it's it's like a convergence of these things that are coming to play at a pinch point now rather than just one or two things we're dealing with. We're actually dealing with multiple changes to work and and working life. And as well as as behaviours and, and a heightened sense of behaviour and leadership and the employee experience as such, another, I suppose, major change or constant that I'm kind of coming across, I suppose, is this... You know, with 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 the pace of change um, and technology and complexity, what we're dealing with today is our ability to be able to adapt to what is going on around us. Whether I'm a leader or whether I'm a you know graduate coming out of college, 
or school or looking for a, a career path and, and skills and so on. This idea of adaptability or change or change ability <laughs> to be able to, mm. you know, both personally and organizationally deal with all of these changes and complexities that are hitting us, you know, uh, with more frequency than ever before. I was looking at an uncertainty index <laughs> as uh, however that can be managed, managed, but it just looked at uncertainty, uh, you know, events over uncertain events and disruption, if you like, over the last 20, 30 years. And it's just incredible over the last, that period, how how more disruption and uncertainty we are facing than, say, the, the previous 50, 60, 80 years. And, and so this ability at organisational, individual level to, to deal with change, Deborah, you know, and, and what that looks like. I'd, I'd just be interested, to g- given your expertise, you know, what's, what's changing about change <laughs> in, in 2023? And, you know, what's, where are we on that? And, and, and what's, what's, what's different about our approach to change or the need for change ability as you see it. Mm. Well, that that goes to the essence of still moving, um, which is now the name of my company and, and, and also a recent book I wrote, in that because there is so much now change going on, it's very easy for our brains to get hijacked mm. by the anxiety and we get the stress response, the fight, flight, freeze syndrome. So I, I talk about the adrenalized organisation if you have an organisation in in because uncertainty that you talked about the index uncertainty tends to generate anxiety and unless we have the tools and the knowledge to mm. handle both our own inner world of anxiety we're not going to be able to lead an organisation that can be adrenalized you know we, we we can be much more easily triggered i think in this current situation so still moving the essence is to to get movement, which is not necessarily getting busy and doing lots of action, you know, a, a genuine um, going to a different place rather than repeating the patterns of the past, we first need to become still. So the neuroscience shows us this, my own personal experience shows us this, that unless we stop, hit the pause button and tune in to our own inner world, what's really going on with my inner state? my thoughts, my feelings, my impulses, not to be scared of them or to try and bury them or to keep them to myself, but to use them as data. Because when the world of work, we're not alone, are we? We are part of a system. Mm. So I'm finding there's more of a heightened interest now in the inner world of an organisation, the inner world of a leader. Because unless we can learn to tune into that and regulate our response to experience, we can't tune into and regulate the world around us. So the brain cannot be anxious and curious at the same time. It's neurologically impossible. So how can leaders, in a way, override the biology of the brain, which tells us to, oh, it's uncertain, better watch out here, to, hey, it's uncertain. What can we do different here? Yeah, this is a flip switch you can have in the mind. So, um, so but that's one thing, a much more heightened interest or awareness or skill needed in that capacity to turn inwards. And, and secondly, you talked about alertness at the start, Kevin. How do you do that in the present moment? You can't just say, well, I'm going to go and Mm. Go off to a retreat and mm. meditate for two weeks. Mm. And then I'll come back and I'll lead my team. <laughs> um, a bit like great athletes. 
because of the ongoing dynamic nature of change right now, leaders need this capacity to stop, notice, switch your mind, tune into what's going on in the here and now moments. And I was working with a group of leaders last week running a leading transformational change workshop. And they suddenly, the penny dropped that unless in the moment their mind is not distracted and alert to the here and now, they're going to misread the signs in the meeting or not pick up on the changing environment. So this capacity to be non-judgmentally and intentionally present in the here and now moment, you know, we have found is the sine qua non, it is the starting point of being able to lead change well. Now, maybe more traditional change theories are all about, right, you've got to go and scan the marketplace. You know, you've got to do mm. the analysis, mm. do the SWOT, you know, all of this mm-hmm. stuff. So we go into our habitual way of doing a bit of a diagnosis rather than perhaps turning inward first and learning to um, to be with oneself and to learn how can that be a, a Geiger counter into what's happening in the system around. So that's, I guess I'd call that at the personal leadership level. Mm. At the meta leadership level, it's what kind of change approach now do you design for ongoing dynamic change. And Kevin, you and I know well, we've talked about this um, a lot, um, is this what I call the world of emergence. So in the living systems, in the physical world all around us, the world is constantly in motion, constantly, always in motion, multiple parts all working in interdependence. And sometimes you don't see that there's necessarily a hierarchical leader guiding nature. Of course, it might, that might depend on your faith, of course. <laughs> um, but emergent change is the capacity to be more with the unfolding nature, the more um, innate way of how organisations tend to want to balance chaos and um, order. So not having a grand plan, not predicting now what we need to do in 12 months time, but I call it now a next change. Let's just plan what we need to do in the next three to six months. The world will look different then. So let's then stop and plan the next phase of Mm -hmm. the change, right? So it's a very much more adaptive, I guess the word these days is agile way of doing change. So I think at both the level of the change approach, but also your personal leadership, that is a very, very, in my view, a different way of doing change, but also a very welcome way And I've been bleating on about this for 20 years and I'm finding now there's more receptivity to this as opposed to it feeling a bit odd and out of control. It feels a very calm, a very calming approach as well. Um, There's something in it too about that idea of still movement, you know, still purposeful movement versus, you know, frantic, busy action. (laughs) And maybe, you know, we're, we're, our default is, oh, we've got to do something. We've got to kind of default back to our repeated patterns of, as you say, you know, the analysis phase, follow the five box model, uh, go through that more linear, you know, project plan approach that maybe has served us well in the past. There's a level of discomfort perhaps in taking that more hands-off approach, that more emergent approach, but yet ultimately it does feel a bit more organic and and actually you know, easy as well in terms of being able to sustain change over time, let change emerge, maybe give it some boundaries. Is that what you talk about in emergent changes? It still needs boundaries and leadership. You know, it's not like chaos here, but mm. you're talking about just a different approach, a different a different style in, in recognizing that in today's world, change is sort of constant and therefore we have to accommodate it and facilitate the change as opposed to direct it. 
Yes, yes. I actually said to somebody last week, it's less about being in control, but you still have to be in command. Mm. And you have to be in command of the conditions under which emergent change can flourish. So the more senior you get as a leader, the more your your task is to work on the organisational system that produces the outcomes. How is it flourishing rather than driving the results per se, because you're getting more and more distant from the direct um, contribution to, to results. So having a big intention is really important. So any system has a purpose. Of, in the living world, that's usually about survival, right? <laughs> um, in the corporate world, you know, every system has um, a purpose of its continuity or viability in some way. And then, as you say, the boundaries, they're called a few hard rules in the worlds of living systems. Um, people might want to Google the Santa Fe Institute of Complex Adaptive Systems, but whether there's physicists or biologists or even anthropologists, one finds that beneath the seeming randomness of the world, uh, we tend to follow like a genetic code of a few hard rules. So I, I work with leaders a lot to try and determine you know, less about the plan for the change, but some of the few hard rules. Um, and an example um, of those, I was working with a company who were trying to become more agile. And rather than launching a whole set of agile training workshops, they just had a, a big intention about um, speed to the market and flexibility. And some of their hard rules were around a decision in three months, which is good enough, is better than waiting 12 months for a perfect decision. Mm. And that completely changed their governance structure and how they made decisions. So they this, this lovely phrase of, is it good enough, became a hard rule as opposed to, is it the perfect, perfect answer? Yeah, yeah, solution. So you get what I mean? So a hard rule mm. is that you really govern the micro-level behaviours of an organisation. So I, I find that um, endlessly fascinating um, as to how can you work in a quicker way and, and, and in a calmer way. Just another quick story about, you know, I love talking about emergence, but I worked with a leader once who was working in an industry where rapid change was coming their way. And he was leading, um, he got his top leadership group together and the traditional way had been to have a very orchestrated two-day off-site, a, a big staff group, you know, planned the meeting, comms, agendas were sent out in advance, pre-reading, you knew what breakout group you were going to be in, you know, 100 PowerPoint slides, etc. were prepared. And he said, no, let's experiment with a more emergent way. So he stood up at the beginning of this big meeting and everyone was thinking, talk about uncertainty. They all arrived thinking, what are we going to do in the next? We haven't got an agenda. So he was trying to simulate mm. what did uncertainty really, really feel like. And, um, and he started the conference and with what appeared to be a closing speech. And everybody was thinking, what's, has he got has, had the communications team given him, you know, the wrong speech? Anyway, after about 10 minutes, after he said, my intention, we've done extremely well, we've you know, come up with this, we did it in a certain way. He said, right. He said, let's now have an extended coffee break for 45 minutes. And in the 45 minutes, I want 10 volunteers to come to the front here and design a conference experience that will deliver those outcomes. So it was pure wow. emergence. You ask for volunteers. You know, you have the intention where yep. you're trying to head, but yep. you ask for volunteers. And it was the most creative, co-owned, um, successful you know, leadership event they'd ever had. But he was really calm. 
his knees were knocking a bit because this had <laughs> never been done before. But yeah, so doing emergent change, you have to give up a bit of control and trust yeah. that the organisation you have in front of you are the right people to to work with you. So, so in terms of what's different about change, I, I think what I hear you saying is that there's still the traditional approaches and there'll be some occasions in putting in projects or systems or dealing with compliance, et cetera, where it is a very linear and directive approach. This is it. I mean, I even think of March 2020 when the, the protocols about working from home and, you know, and everything else, it was very clear, black and white. It was legal <laughs> how we had to change and, and behave. But, but what you're saying is, yes, that might be appropriate for certain circumstances, but in the modern world of work, the changing world of work and all the complexity and uncertainty that we've been talking about, there's two things that that sort of emerge for you as, as being different, if you like. One is this awareness of my inner relationship with change or my inner re- reaction and response to change as a, as a leader, but as an individual as well. And secondly, more of an acceptance of this style or approach to change, uh, the emergent approach, which is something we're going to have to lean on or, or master with more frequency maybe than we've ever had to do before because so much of that change is uncertain and complex and therefore there's no linear magic formula so therefore we need to 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 master this more emergent approach to change as well as kind of think about our own internal steadiness with change our relationship with change is that a fair summary of of those elements you see as as being maybe different or more exaggerated than they've ever been yes Mm. absolutely and I often summarise it at the, the meta level as mm. does your change process model the desired outcome? Mm. Mm. So, of course, if your outcome is compliance, we need to stay at home, blah, 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 then your change approach. Blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. So, but so much of the intentions now behind mm. change are getting used to uncertainty, interdependency, increased democratisation of the workplace, so why would you bring in, therefore, a change process to get there that wasn't democratic, that didn't involve people, that you didn't hold uncertainty within it? So does your change approach model the desired outcome? Often we think we've just got to get to the change and the change will be there rather than the actual process of bringing in the change is in itself um, a step in the toe of the river of this system. So I love designing change approaches or designing change processes because they're not a tool to get to a destination the journey in itself is the destination if you see and, what I mean. and and how those involved in leading that kind of behave back to your behavior point is so important and how they behave is coming from how they themselves have reflected i suppose on on, on their behaviour. I mean, you mentioned once, I remember a story you told you in your own personal experience of, I think, that risk group that you were in charge of BBC. There was a big project, wasn't there? There was a big transformation and you were heading up that big 20 million, I think, programme and you just in your managed change or led that group in a particular way, but then you kind of noticed, you know, that maybe this different, more aware, self-aware approach was was needed. And the, the ripple effect that that had on your colleagues. Do you want to share that story? So we were managing a big relocation for um, the BBC worldwide. I was in the commercial arm of the BBC. So, of course, with the budget involved and, you know, we had to make sure that programmes went out on time, even though we were moving the production facilities from one place to another place. 
So everything had to be, the continuity was very important. Um, and the, the risk committee, I had initially approached it in my uh, default mode of I was feeling that I couldn't do anything. I was always said, no, Deborah, you can't do that. It's way too creative. So I felt what I had to do was maybe re-engineer the people on the risk committee, come in with a different way of looking at a risk matrix. So I, I was in my outer world of judging what I was seeing in front of me. And then I was getting involved um, in this whole world of, of mindfulness, which was back in 2014, 2015, or even before that. And I tried you know, an experiment one morning to, uh, rather than change the outer world, change my inner world. So as I was going in on the tube between Notting Hill and uh, uh, White City, I was really switching my brain from judgment to curiosity, from critique to compassion, from impatience to open-mindedness. So I went into the, the risk committee meeting that morning, same people, same agenda items that we followed every time, same even meeting room. I think it was the Doctor Who room at the at BBC Worldwide Centre, the Daleks everywhere. And it was remarkable how the meeting flowed in a completely different way, all because I'd decided to regulate my inner world. And I was fascinated by that and knowing now, you know, with neuroscience, how people behave based on the inner presence of the leader, not what they say. Mm, they absolutely you picked pick up, up mm, the mirror mm. neurons in our brains. So mm. it's, can you put, um, you know, your ego to the background and your presence to the foreground? And I think, you know, Kevin, we have a to be list in still moving, there's oftentimes we have a to-do list, but our four inner capacities, as we call them, the to-be list, are what we have researched as highly um, causally, not causally related, sorry, they are associated with leaders who lead change well. So do pay attention to the quality of your being. Um, and that comes quite free, really, doesn't it? You don't have to pay consultants to work on your inner state. It's up to you as to what you want to do with that. So yes, with the, the complexity you're talking about in the, in the workplace right now, we can get easily jangled or um, so that that inner resilience um, and to be able to sort of notice your emotions and treat them as data rather than to react to them in an yeah, impulsive Victor, way. Victor Frankl said the, the respond versus react piece. Maybe Indeed. picking up on that point then about, say, practical level, Deborah, if we were to sort of take some of these insights and, and principles and lessons that you've learned over all this time. Any advice about how, you know, we could apply this at organizational level as part from the, you know, examples you've been giving, you know, what's your, what's your advice to folks who actually say, why well, we, we want to at organizational meta level, we want to maybe do this change better. We want to maybe look at our model of change or our approach to change. Any any thoughts or you know advice about where you know, to start with that and 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 to to make some practical what might be different you know for leaders how what 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 might they do differently maybe than they've they've done before? Well, I, th I think the first thing I know it sounds really basic, but is to become more conscious of the how you go about things, and not just have conversations about what we need to do. You know, whether that's a policy on flexible working or whatever that might be. So how you come up with that policy or how you come up with a restructuring or how you determine um, a new DNI 
you know, strategy for the workplace. How you go about that is is fateful, how you engage people. So what are the choices available? So I think, therefore, when you're um, embarking on any change, to have equal attention to that. One leader I work with, they had a famous diagram. It was called either the butterfly or the aeroplane. But they had the, the fuselage or the whatever the middle of a butterfly is called. Um, and that was all of the um, change initiatives that were happening. And on the, the right-hand wing was was what? Where they were having to do the restructuring or changing their EBITDA ratio, all of the, you know, the hard things that had to be done in the change. And on the other side, or the wing of the butterfly or the plane, was how this is going to be done. They chose a change approach. They communicated that. They talked about the leadership style associated with that choice of change approach. And they were rigorous in how that was implemented. So you know, the whole metaphor here is you can't fly a plane with one wing. You know, the, the plane will only go well, obviously, um, if there are two wings having equal balance. So they both have vital engines for you know, getting to the place that you need to, to get to. So, um, so be conscious about your choice of change approach. Um, have a consistent way of a, a language um, of talking about change across your organisation. And I think the most important thing that I've learned from this all approach is is just the power of acknowledgement, of acknowledging a new reality, not putting your head in the sand necessarily, but the capacity of a leader to cleanly voice um, not just the benefit of where we're heading, but also, as you know, Kevin, I talk a lot about the cost of change. Yeah, and effectively, so any any big change will doesn't just take you to the sunny uplands. It, everything maybe comes with a um, a price tag. Yeah, so that, that's the way you, what you word, might that be? You word that beautifully in your model because I know there's sort of four elements to your change vitality model. Maybe we can touch on them. I think you have already, but maybe just to summarize them for for the listeners. But you you mentioned that I think it's the word exchange, which I think is very interesting as one of the forces that are going one of the things that are going on in the room in other words rather than just continuously trying to oversell and communicate because we often think if we if we're passionate enough about the future state and if we hype up the benefits of where we're going and the the brilliant new world that we're going to create yeah we can overestimate that actually because people are clever now you know we've talked about you know the the behavioral side we've talked about people's pickup on on things that you can only that needs to be pretty genuine, and there's a risk, isn't it, that you can overhype or overemphasize the the positives of the change, and under recognize or undervalue the the cost and underappreciate the cost. That's 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 going to be there. The exchange, if you like, is that is that fair summary of of where where your thinking here is is to acknowledge that and and not to try to over PR it. Oh, yes, yes, Mm. yes. At the start of my career in change, (laughs) I worked with a a great guy called Daryl Connor, who was an an American guru on change. And when I was at PepsiCo, I worked with him and he talked about the return on change. You know, there's the above the line benefits and then there's the the investment or the costs. And he said, we way underestimate the human dynamics, the cost of that. But I was working with a group last week just to make it practical about um, the cost of change. And we did a very, very simple exercise around what is going to be um, got in this change or received, um, you know, the, the, and who are the beneficiaries, but also what has to be given. Mm. 
And I just love this difference between what is going to be given as well as what is going to be got. And they mapped out both what is going to be given and got, but also who is giving and who is getting. And to the extent whereby they stood in a line as to who's going to get most here with this change in this institution and who's going to have to give more. And it was incredible just standing in a line um, of where is the debt within this organisation? Who owes whom what? So, yes, so one of the elements of change vitality is what we call these forces that order Mm. the ease with which we feel. Do we feel good about this change or do we feel a bit, you know, something's not quite right here. We're getting stuck. We're going around in repeating um, patterns. So that is certainly one of them is to what we call look at the systemic undertoes in an organisation. And one of them is our acute, um, almost like a sense of justice as to who is giving and who is taking here. Not that you can ever write it at any one time. There's always going to be an imbalance. It's a bit like in a relationship. Sometimes you give more in a relationship, but, you know, you'll get something back, you know, in in a year or two years' time. And it's the same in organisations as well. And I think at the moment with the changing workplace, there's a profound, people are giving up an Mm -hmm. awful lot of stuff. There's a lot being received here, but there's also a lot that has to be um, given and we have to unbelong. Um, particularly things like hierarchy, or we talked about office entitlement. You know, yeah, and even like even that. the shift to hybrid working now is this great exchange going on because you know people are. If you ask ten people, ten different people in a team about their preferred model of when they want to be in the office and when they want to work from home, you're going to get ten different answers based on personal circumstances and needs and uh, criteria um, and aspirations, whereas if we try to come to an accommodation as a team and change towards a different model, well, there's going to be exchange there. We're going to have to give up in order to get this great flexible model, you know, that we all want to have with the right balance of both experiences in office and and remote. We're we're going to have to accommodate what the team needs as well as what I need. So that's the example, isn't it, of exchange and and. And why this emergent change approach is required, because it's very hard to be directive in those circumstances, isn't it? When there's exchange going on, and you know, that's where this emergence seems to be a, a, a really good approach, because you're, you're letting that change happen and you're acknowledging it along the way. Exactly. And it's, mm-hmm. it's quite, I found it the more I've been in this field, how does the, the profound speaking of truth settles people? Yeah. And it sort of overcomes disgruntlements. And so, for example, particularly the younger generation, some of them are saying, well, you know, if there's no offices anymore, hold on a minute, I really wanted a social life. So when I joined this company and they had this lovely office in, I don't know, West End of London, <laughs> if you're now saying it's hybrid working, I've got to now give up my sense of going to the pub every evening after work, you know. So there's always going to be a sense of gain and give. Mm. And the, having the conversation about that um, tends to settle the organisation, going back to de-adrenalising the system. Yeah. And, and so, yes. And the, the role of the, the leader there, you know, back to that sort of inner capacities or the inner state is acknowledging those difficulties. So, you know, you've talked about being still and noticing, et cetera. And sometimes, I suppose, in a tricky or thorny change, we, we try to sort of drive over the difficulties or we try to push through them and hope it'll all be okay at the other end. But I, I think what you're getting at in your 
in your capacity, this 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 inward looking uh, approach to to my response or my leadership of change is actually to 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 embrace those difficulties and those difficulties, you know, to 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 actually appreciate that's data that that I should expect some unsettlement here. I should expect it's actually welcome because that means we're moving, right? Is that is that kind of where you're coming mm, from? Absolutely. I mean, mm. you you can't tune into the system if you can't tune into yourself. Mm. And great change leaders are able to tune into the system, so they, you know, they don't—they're not acting blindly. Yeah. So sometimes that inner data—if you're feeling frustrated or you're feeling tired in a meeting or whatever it might be—of course, it might belong to your own personal backstory, but it's more than likely something that's being owned in the wider culture as well. So, tuning into self in order to tune into the system is essential. And not thinking you're being mad by revealing yeah, it. Yeah, you know, well, that's it. We're, we're, Keep your emotions at bay, stiff up yeah. a lip, you know, be positive. <laughs> yeah. That's not what I'm talking about here. Yeah, yeah, no, because we've talked about that too, haven't we? This sort of authenticity as well, you know, about how much of that to bring into the room here uh, or not. And uh, so, you know, in terms of the, the formula, if you like, or the kind of elements at an organizational level, you've talked about, I suppose, the ability of, of leaders to have some of these inner capacities to be comfortable about where they are with change and how they're leading change. You've talked about practices, these different approaches, whether the emergent approach is the right one or a more directive approach. And you've talked about these these forces being acknowledging the, the the forces that are going on, whether it be exchange or whether it be time or, you know, bigger things, if you like, that are impacting the change as well, that it's not just a logical linear kind of uh, uh, equation we're dealing with. Does that kind of capture the, the, you know, your sort of roadmap, if you like, or your, your model for how, you know, the elements of, of, of change and, you know, the kind of almost playbook that you could apply, I suppose, um, in any organisation? Absolutely, Kevin. Mm. I was listening to a, a, it wasn't a podcast, but I was listening to a radio show the other day where they had um, uh, Ai Weiwei, you know, the Chinese dissident mm. sort of slash artist who has got a new exhibition at the Design Museum in London. And um, one of the installations is, is Lego bricks. And he was being interviewed along with a, an engineer who's just written a book called, I think, Nuts and Bolts. And she has tried to collapse everything you need to know mm. about how you build the Empire State Building or you know everything boils down to these few things you need to know about suspension and wiring and whatever. But an Iwayway was saying, you need to know what your Lego bricks are. So that was partly behind his art. So these are my Lego bricks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> these are the fewest things that will actually create the biggest impact. I'm not saying we should go out and build the Empire State Building, but change is big, it's complex, it can get wobbly and have accidents, right? So yeah, these are my Lego bricks. The inner state of a leader, what you then do as a leader, um, making disturbance your friend, working with that, voicing that, the, your choice of change approach, and finally paying attention to these deep um, somebody called it last week, you've got to look beneath the floorboards mm. and find out what's really tugging, tugging the behaviour in this system. So those are the four things that at Still Moving, we say, make up change vitality. And all researched. We did the Ordering Forces research mm. two years ago. So each one of those four Lego bricks are now researched and haven't got time now because of what's more, they're all highly interdependent. So they work um, as a as a system themselves. Well, thanks for that, Deborah. And I, I suppose to, to maybe to finish, you know, being a, an Irish Times training, you know, podcast, we like to 
get into skills, some practical skills as well that people can take or develop. Because it's, you know, it's, and, and indeed our own research when we were looking at, well, you know, what would be the skills that will help people adapt and thrive in the future of work? And and it's amazing how many of them, uh, that, that work came down to the core enabling capability of of agility. Um, in the words that, you know, if we could solve for agility, if we knew what agility looked like at organizational and individual level, we would be doing, we would be, enab- we would be enabling ourselves to be able to cope with whatever change and disruption came. Um, and then we said, well, what does that look like? You know, in reality, in practical terms, and the skills of, of personal agility, uh, particularly. Um, and, 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 you know, the, and it was so clear that this became the sort of underlying, you know, capability for future of work readiness. And there's about six of them, but the uh, a very major one was this idea of change, you know, changeability. Um, this, this, our relationship with change or our or ability to be able to change because we're naturally wired maybe to resist it, right? We, you know, we, we don't we like change. We don't want to be having to change all the time. So dealing with that paradox, um, our change ability and our resilience to do so. Um, so at, at individual level, I suppose just very interested in what your you know thoughts are you know for for all of us in terms of our own personal leader change leadership skill set. What are the two or three things that I, you think we need to see more common you know in in individuals as we all you know adapt to the changing world of work. Mm. Yes, I could go on about you know a number of skills that that builds up agility, but at the personal mm. level, if I reflect on um, when I have managed to go through uh, a big change quickly, rather than a, in a sludgy uh, sort of slow way, um, and these are life skills actually, and they're not just about mm. work skills. And I, and I've said it before, Kevin, but it's always been driven by changing my attitude to what's happening in the present moment. Yeah, perspective. And I know that sounds really. Mm. It are changing one's perspective. Now I know that sounds yeah, it's blooming hard to do, but agility for me is the capacity to come off autopilot, notice your reactivity in the moment, and switch. Sense what's switch going your on. Attitude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it is phenomenal how the world is suddenly different. You know, coming off reactivity gives you so many choices of response. So many choices, but if you're not noticing your reactivity, you will stay stuck. And that's not agility, is it? That's almost the opposite yeah. of agility. Yeah. So um, self-awareness brings freedom, freedom of how to respond quickly. Yeah. So having that heightened attention. So I, I, I've said it before, so I'm not saying anything new yeah. here. Yeah. Um, so, but the question is, then, how do you train yourself? How do you have that? skill set of noticing and in the moment switching it could happen in a nanosecond um and i just i do think it takes time i think it's um a question of you can just do little things every day i don't know somebody who wants to train me said even when you're brushing your teeth you know sort of notice are you doing it in a mindful way or are you just doing it in a default um way one leader i worked with once I think I might have shared the story with you. She was going through a very, very big um, risky change process. Every morning when she um, got out the shower and looked into the steamed up mirror, um, she 
did little emojis on the steamed up mirror to draw how she was feeling right now. And she said by putting her emotions onto the steamed up mirror, it, it allowed her to decenter herself from her fear, to decenter herself from her anger, from her frustration. So she still carried them, but she held them on the mirror <laughs> as opposed to grumbling as she yeah. got into the car to work. So there's this, yeah, so the things that you can do, I think, in a very practical day to day way to stop, notice your inner state, and to not want to you know, have it be something else, but to say, I'm feeling this right now. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. How does that help me? Yeah, taking a breath, taking a breath so that we can respond rather than react and just rely on those repeated patterns, if you like, because it just feels that sense of detachment is such a useful skill, you know, to be able to just take the moment to see, well, where where am I? And and, and review those options, whether that be in a change context or or dealing with, you know, complexity that's just happening I mean, in the moment, in a meeting even. Because it just, it feels like that relationship between agility and change, it's almost the same thing. The, you know, agility implies change ability, mm. doesn't it? So therefore, uh, it's no surprise that you've come back to those inner capacities that you started with. And indeed, the whole essence of still moving is stillness, you know, to, to ensure uh, purposeful movement as opposed to just action based on, on the repeated patterns of the past. Indeed. So it looks like slowing down. It, it looks like the opposite of agility. Yep, yep. There's this lovely leadership poet called David White, and he had one of his expressions is, um, sometimes speed is a symptom of complete mm-hmm. immobility. It's great, isn't it? So I, I, I love yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, because it's dealing with so the we, paradox, isn't it, Deborah? Exactly. Any other thoughts before we leave it, Deborah, today, in terms of your insight into change and changeability in the in the world of work today it's been so good to get such a a, a wide span of of your experiences and stories but anything else that comes to mind i think maybe the final thing i'll close with and one of the leaders last week i was working with mentioned it is having gone through the week this heightened sense of you can't do this on your own now, I'm not saying that everybody should go into therapy or, or, you know, whatever, but certainly in my work, I have a supervisor who helps me see my patterns and my default responses. So I think maybe the final thing is, can you work maybe with a, um, sometimes I was going to say a buddy, but sometimes somebody who's not your friend <laughs> might speak to you in a different way than mm-hmm. somebody who is very close to you. Um, but yeah, seek out a coach or a mentor who is is quite skilled in this capacity to have you reflect more deeply on yourself and your patterns, where they come from, who and what do they belong to. So um, don't go it alone, yeah. I guess would be my final piece of advice. Along with emojis on the on the steamed up mirror. It's another way it's another way of that detachment. It just keeps self therapy. Exactly. <laughs> well, Deborah, I really, really want to thank you for, for joining us today. I, I think what I admire about your, your work so much and, and how it and you, you know, bring this sort of sense of, of calm to change and in such a sort of phonetic kind of world. And and it's a healthy and a human approach, I think, to, to leading change and how we think about our personal relationship with change as well. It strikes me that these are just so such fundamental well-being skills as well as change skills uh, for the future. And if, if people want to know more about your work and get in touch, what's what's the best way for them to do so? I have a website, which is www.still-moving.com. Lots of resources on that. If you go to the 
I think it's called the media site. There's details about my books. There's lots of films, articles. So there's a cornucopia freely available for people to find out a bit more about what I've been talking about today. So maybe that's the first port of call. Great. Well, Deborah Rowland, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Changing World of Work podcast. Join us next time as we speak to experts about the trends, innovations and developments affecting workers and our workplaces.